Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Ellie Lanning. She's the managing director of Camino Partners. Camino is the just announced investment platform and incubator from Kind founder Daniel Lubetsky. Lanning herself is also an alum of Kind. I really want to talk with her about what it's like to go from the brand side of things to the investment world, you know, talk about the state of consumer-facing startups as a whole, and just get a sense for what she and Camino are looking for in new investments. Hi, Ellie. How are you doing? Thanks for joining. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first, I gave a very truncated background, uh, but why don't you tell tell me about yourself and how, how you got to where you are now with Camino? Yeah, so... Um... I, I suppose, actually, to tell the Camino story, I have to go backwards first, and I'll try to try to do that quickly. <laughs> but um, from a personal standpoint, um, you know, started in, you know, it is crazy looking back, like when you're supposed to decide what you want to be for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, so I can't say that I got that right, right out the gates. I thought that I wanted to be in the kind of medical device space. And so spent uh, what was like six months kind of tinkering with that in a sales capacity and found that it really didn't have any intersection with my kind of personal life and personal interests. And so luckily, pretty quickly iterated and realized that I wanted to do something where I could bring personal and professional together um, and did that um, back in the earlier 2000s, uh, around the time when the food landscape was really changing. And so I was fortunate to get to work uh as a marketer on the agency side for what was a very big brand at that time, Kashi, um, and worked with uh, an agency, Havas Formula, um, across a number of different things, a majority in kind of this emerging and challenger food brand space, and uh, formed and kind of cemented my passion for that. But I would say even within that, um, found myself more drawn to the founder-based brands. So got to work with some brands like Pop Chips and Honest Tea um, while they were still founder-led. Um, and that organically brought me to meet Daniel uh, Lubetsky, who you mentioned was the founder of Kind, uh, back when he was first starting to build out a team. Um, and so met him and you know within minutes kind of knew he was one of the rarest breeds of founder um and you know I spent that first kind of hour as a marketer trying to understand what his vision was what he foresaw um and I should say as a food marketer at the time and he was like we are going to break down barriers between human beings we are going to make them see their shared <laughs> humanity and I said, and are you going to sell? Yeah, these he sounds like a marketer. <laughs> too. It, but it was very, um, I, I tell that little story because it was actually a really important one to how we ended up building and scaling kind, which is that even at that point, it was, I think he had just done like an eight or $10 million revenue year, right? Um, even at that point, what, what he saw as the role for the brand in the world and, you know, what the product portfolio were, we struggled. They weren't always like immediately connected, but he knew that, 
you know, in his mind, what we were setting out, the journey we were setting out on to build um, could have more impact. And so um, I had the good fortune of having a lot of early conversation with him prior to joining about maybe wanting to start something on my own someday. And so uh, made the leap and then that turned into, you know, a dozen plus years building and scaling kind with him and a, um, you know, fantastic team too along the way um, and really kind of architecting, architecting each stage of growth. Um, And every kind of decision along that way, I would say was centered on what was best for the business, what was the next opportunity set for the business. And it was only when we got to a place where, uh, the next set of opportunities were international that we realized we weren't the best suited to be the shepherds of that. And so that ultimately led us to a strategic partnership with a larger global company. Um, and then on the back of that and really, um, you know, setting kind into a new set of hands to oversee the the day-to-day and the next phases of growth, we turned to say, you know, what do we want to do now? Like that we we amassed so many learnings from doing things right, doing things wrong, et cetera. Um, doing things, you know, would have done them in a different order if you could have gone back. Uh, and so that is what led us to Camino, where we're really looking to put that experience to work with the next generation of um, consumer businesses. Got it. Got it. Can you, at Kind, because you were there for over a dozen years, you said, and you started in a predominantly marketing fashion. Is that right? Yes. So what are are all the different hats and things that you did? Because your last role was chief of staff, which is kind of everything, for for lack of a better word, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I started within the marketing capacity. I spent um, my first at least four years really focused in that. But again, you know, my orientation within the business was um, so set by this idea that I might want to start something on my own someday. So, you know, and and Daniel's response to that was like, so long as you deliver for me in the capacity that I am hiring you, I'll take you on my founder journey. And I really just used that as an invitation to nose my way into everything and to learn every aspect of the business, like really to use it as my learning lab to deliver against my expertise in marketing and then uh to you know root myself in what are the other key components of a successful business and how do those come together and so that then naturally set me up to help start the strategy function so many of those first years of kind uh, you know, it was a game of keeping up with the demand we were creating in the market. And we realized like, okay, that demand is taking this fast moving product out across more distribution points, um, more points of sale, but that has a runway too. And so we need to get some people outside of the day to day to say, what's that next horizon? What's that next demand lever? And so, um, did that and started, uh, helped to start the strategy function. Um, and then that was naturally kind of what led to what I said as after a couple of turns international as really the next frontier and the next source of growth, 
which then naturally gave way to me starting the corporate development function, which I did uh, coinciding with the chief of staff role for Daniel. Um, And the corporate development function at first was rooted in this idea of how do we enable international expansion through a strategic partnership? Um, And then the chief of staff side of things is um, Daniel is very much a, well, I always say he could, he can actually do whatever he wants. He's very smart, but, uh, whatever he kind of sets his mind, uh, um, to, but he is naturally much more of a kind of visionary. Um, and so really my role there was, you know, some days I was Daniel translator. Some days I was deciding what things from the business, like, needed to escalate to get in front of his eyes as like the chairman and founder. Um, most days I was, uh, you know, deeply partnered with the leadership team in those, uh, the decisions that were core at that stage of growth. Got it. Got it. And so talk to me about how Camino came to be sort of and what's the thesis and what, like, what, how long had it been in, in, sort of the idea stage to where it is now. Yeah. You know, building and scaling kind was a was a all-consuming thing. So none of us really had like side hustles or hobbies. Um so it very it was not a um part of like the ideation set while we were doing that. It was really once, you know, once we had formed um the strategic partnership, once we had seen through you know, our responsibilities to ourselves and our shareholders in, um, you know, we, we sometimes tease, it was like sending a kid off to college. I haven't done that (laughs) yet, but, um, you know, once we did that, we kind of turned and said like, okay, what do we want to do now? We've amassed this experience. We have, you know, great talent from different stages and different functions along the way of kinds growth that we'd love to like put back together in some capacity and um and so we looked at a few different things we looked at like do we start you know a, a, another single kind of operating business and go back all in on one thing again um and you know where we net out was um really wanting to find what we call like valued teams and companies um to put our experience to work with them across a broader set of um a broader set of businesses than than just one and so um that was uh what gave way and in terms of the thesis i mean the thesis is heavily rooted in our operating experience right and so it's really putting that operating experience to work and so i think what's uh, far more like attractive about us than our capital because um, capital has been particularly easy to find. Maybe not as much right now, but uh, it's been in uh, it's been too available uh, if you ask. Yeah, me, in the past years, and so really for us, it, it's more of um, you know the the right partnerships for us are ones that are rooted in uh valuing the experience first and then what the capital can do to turbocharge their business because it's not an insignificant amount of capital that we're bringing but um that's the equation that we um bring to bear 
Got it. And just um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's $350 million is the, is the amount of the fund, right? Yes, correct. Got it. Very, very cool. It's a good amount of money. Yes. <laughs> Do you have, just as someone who's going from, you know, the brand world, scaling world into the investment world, do you have a formal rubric or like what what are you thinking about when you're evaluating these companies and how are and how are you thinking about it? Because so much about brand building and I'm sure working with a company like Kind and you were talking about Daniel saying such lofty things as we're going to connect people, but you can't put, you know, you can't subsume that down to a business deck really. So how do you think about that from the investment side? Yeah. So I would say uh, we don't have as rigid of kind of filters or parameters as some, um, as I know some other investors do, but we do have kind of a set of criteria we look for. And it's interesting because actually, if you like, if you root it in kind and you look at back at the time when Daniel took on his first uh, outside investment, and if you were to have talked about like the TAM then, I mean, we sat in kind of functional and diet kind of bars for several years. Uh, that would, that I'm, I presume it actually did filter Daniel and kind out of a lot of investors, um, investors kind of criteria set. And so we, you have to have some of that for expediency, right? Because there's the volume of things that you're going to move through. Um, but then we try to make sure we're somewhat nuanced in in our look. And so, um, you know, we talk about it in the sense that we want to partner with the companies where we feel like we can put a maximum amount of the breadth of our experience to play. And so what do I mean by that? You know, this is we are okay looking at, um, you know, looking at a business that has a strong foothold or start in a single uh, sales channel, whether that is D2C, whether that is, you know, a natural retailer, whether that is, um, you know, a specialty retailer, whatever that might be. Um, But we want to see kind of proof of then early traction in a place outside of its home. Because what that means for us, if you look at Kind and how we actually scaled it to the size that it is, it was through the very careful knitting and studying of the interaction between many different sales channels, right? And we want to be able to do that uh, with partner companies. So that's one important criteria. Um, You know, we do... uh, we look at a measure of consumer demand as an ability to um, have a strong margin out the gates. I think that there's been, um, I actually think this takes me back to a little of my point about like the excess of capital. I think one of the things I've, I've uh, observed that this like free cash, uh, environment of the last several years did is it actually gave birth to a lot of businesses that overlooked uh, their, you know, financial fundamentals and thought, well, we'll buy the market, we'll get the growth, and then we'll solve for that. Um, I've seen very few who have then been able to solve for that when the time comes. And so, you know, you look at kind and so much of that story was like that, based on the fact that those things mattered from the get-go. You know, it was 
profitable and cash flow positive from day one. Um, And that was a decision that required a lot of grit, a lot of negotiation, a lot of, uh, you know, detail orientation around like original contracts that people kind of might want to move through more quickly. And so that's another um, factor that we look at. And then the other thing that we really look for is, you know, products that kind of uh, products or services that stand alone, um, but then that also have an authentic and greater kind of reason for being. And we call it a story told brand. Um, not because like those actually are just more fun and they, you know, give you something to like wake up in the day and like get excited about, but also from a, um, from a financial standpoint, the ability to then build those businesses and build that brand with a much more efficient marketing mix that then, you know, gives way to a stronger PNL, um, is something that not only we're really strong believers in, but I would say pretty exceptional executors of. All right. We're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. I want to go more into what you keep talking about that there's just been a, there was at least up until a few months ago, I'd say, or maybe six months ago, a glut of money going into these companies. And it's in a really interesting space right now, or a really interesting moment we're in right now, because, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, it meant that there were a lot of single channel companies that were really savvy marketers who were able to grow, but probably not profitably grow. Um, And then they got a lot of interest from, from VC that meant they had to grow at a specific, you know, rate that they probably couldn't sustain. And so how, like, where do you think that, where do you think we are now? It seems like there's been a huge cooling of the market and a lot of companies are getting some interesting stories about how, you know, they raised a hundred million dollars, but they only have 28,000 subscribers or something like that. So like, how, how are you thinking about this now in terms of when you are looking and investing in these types of companies and growth is very hard to come by in a profitable way. Is it that they're not going to have the same, you know, hockey stick growth that a tech company would have? Or how are you thinking about that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so we kind of talk about it from, a, we talk about it from a sustained growth, right? Uh, and so I think it, it, I would say too, it's hard to talk about in such broad terms, because, you know, there may be some circumstances where actually like going out and buying the market and being first mover is advisable, right? But I just, I think the, like that and everything else cast aside is probably almost never the the right equation. Um, And I I also think that, you know, in a, um, in a consumer space, you're dealing with discretionary decisions anyway. And so, you know, what is someone deciding to like buy you today is maybe not them tomorrow. So I think like you're, it's not a uh, set and forget revenue stream, I guess is a, a difference that I would point out. And so that's why we, we believe in concentrating on those fundamentals out the gate. But, um, you know, I would give you an example, um, you know, with with one of our portfolio companies right now, Belgian Boys, um, they experienced as did a, a number of businesses, 
some real significant challenges on the supply chain side um, that changed their uh, their cost structure, you know, even six months after we had originally invested. And so what we really started talking about with them was, and I I would say too, a lot of this, the reason why we're able to do this is we're long-term oriented, right? And so I guess I should say you have to start with the, with that. You have to have the ability and the conviction to do that. Um, but you know what we talk about with them is the right pace of growth, which is that the right pace of growth for them, they're in a way creating a category because they are... Um, you know, a refrigerated fresh kind of version of products that typically we Americans are used to like buying in a freezer set, which in their minds, they're a European couple, like degrades the product experience. It's not the way those ingredients are like meant to be treated or consumed. And, um, and so they're really pioneering like a different way for us to interact with these products in a different overall experience by virtue of that supply chain choice that they've taken. And so they do and should be first mover, right? And a lot of the retailers are looking at them as, you know, in most cases, like they sit next to eggs or different things like an occasion set. And so we want to support them in getting into all those right doors and proving performance and then driving the cost down and dialing up the growth as that happens. And so it's about on a day-to-day basis, like keeping those things moving together and never one at the expense of the other. Um, And I think that, again, for us, that's easy to do because of of the long-term orientation. I, I know I've talked to a number of founders this year who have just really felt um yanked around for lack of a better term by like the same board that was giving them a totally different set of guidance a year ago is now like punishing them for the decisions that they were directed to take and so i it's um i can see the the challenge and the frustration um in that experience yeah well it seems like there's an it's being a founder is very difficult because there was a glut of money, you're expected to raise money. And then to grow at such a high rate costs so much money. And it's also like, and so I, I guess the question that I wanted to ask you is, are would you be considering companies that aren't, that don't have the scale abilities long term that something like Kind would, but would sustainably grow and would be able to be like a real profitable from the day, from day one going yep. forward and grow at their own rate? Or are you looking for real category definers that are going to, 10 years from now, be acquired by Mars? Yep. So uh, I'll start with one thing, which is, so one of our um, tenants at Kind was this idea of the and philosophy. And it was, you know, challenging false compromises. And so your mind is wired to frame an or, right? And you've got to, when you real, when you see yourself doing that, you've got to really stop and say, is it an or? Or can there be an and? And so I think there, to your point, it's expensive to grow. I would say, is it? You know, kind, we took in $5 million of primary investment, $6 million of primary investment to scale it to a multi-billion dollar platform. Um, 
we did that through, you know, we talked, some of that was in the culture setting that we talked about, like, I never wanted someone if I ever heard, well, we have budget left. Like that wasn't the way to think about it. We are a culture of owners. Like that dollar is your dollar. It's not the company's dollar. You quite literally are an equity holder, right? Would you spend that dollar? So it's shifting what I think you see as like spend environments that are created by raising $100 million to investment-minded environments and ways of working. And so growth doesn't have to be expensive. Um, and I think, you know, you can find, I I will say like, that was a different time and place. So if we could do that the exact same way today, like I'm humble enough to say, I don't know. Um, but I think that those opportunities, um, do still exist. You've just got to challenge the premise to even get there. And I don't know how much that is, is happening, Um, And then in terms of your question, it's not to say, by the way, that then um, we won't look at companies that aren't profitable. We will, but I need to then be talking to people who very much understand why they aren't profitable. Like it is a conscious decision. They are not profitable because they are making this strategic choice to invest in X, Y, or Z. And I think part of um the challenge is that we've seen so many businesses that aren't profitable at like the contribution margin line before you're even getting into people ex- like opex and marketing expenses and you know that goes back to if you aren't focused on making sure that like every product you sell you're able to put it on that website ship it to that consumer put it on that shelf, have the consumer buy it and be taking in a certain amount of money that then can cover those other strategic investments. That is a problem, right? And so I've, you know, interacted with a lot of people who aren't profitable because they aren't profitable at the unit economic level. And and there, there hasn't sometimes been the awareness of it or there isn't a bridge plan that you could bank a lot on that get, gets them out of that. Got it. Yeah. It's bad if they're not aware that why they're not a profitable at a unit economic level. You'd hope that they have a plan for that. <laughs> but I think that there's just been a real, um, the need for like discipline um, in, I think, uh, in a exuberant market uh, can pretty easily go away. Um, I wanted to ask you, and this sort of leads into that, uh, just given that you're talking to so many brands and founders and you're thinking about so many different things, and I think that a lot of companies specifically in the consumer-facing mind, not over-indexed, but they put a lot of a lot of their marbles um, into branding and marketing and sort of that type of thing. And so what are you looking for when you're talking to a company in terms of, or what do you think is the most underutilized or not utilized at all facet of a company that you wish they had more expertise in that would help bring really impress you? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I go back to, well, I, I should say the first thing that we're really feeling out is strong kind of values alignment. And for us, our core values are centered around integrity, 
entrepreneurialism and building one another. Um, and we need to, cause I, I, you know, I say over and over again, the only thing I can guarantee is that things will not go to plan. And that sometimes will be in a, you know, you didn't set your aspirations high enough and in other times it'll be in the other direction. And so the thing uh, we need to be really um, clear on and see authentically in, in, in initial interactions is, uh, is is that because those are the things we're going to draw back on in challenging times, which I'm certain like we'll face together. Um, so that I would say is first and foremost, and then also important because we believe how you, uh, how you structure your culture, how you set your team up on a day-to-day is, you know, is one of the most critical competitive advantages. Um, and so that is, is one thing. The other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, we really, we want to be looking at things that have, um, you know, some real like elbow room in terms of what their, the service or product offering is to the consumer and, you know, someone who can really like see that and represent it authentically. Um, you know, I, I, I talk about how, you know, we don't want like the four minute abs to the five minute abs. Like it (laughs) it needs to be kind of more than that because that has to be the basis on which strong brand is built. Right. And so like banking on brand alone, even if you've got some of the most adept marketers um, is, is a tough equation. Um, And so you look at, you know, that was the story at kind, you know, the first four or five years that I was there and Daniel had been at it for, you know, four years prior to that. um, The only thing that looked like kind was kind. The only thing that brought that type of solution, which was rooted in this consumer desire for real ingredients and like a, you know, a a value of transparency with convenience. I mean, he created like the most, uh, like he put those together, those kind of macro trends together in like the truest form. And we had a runway on the market for several years. And it was in that time that we were extremely focused on building brand because we knew that would become the moat. Right. So what started as like a product choice for someone became a like brand that represents me choice. So then when the other, you know, the the four minute abs to our five minute abs, whatever came to the market, you then had people who were choosing kind versus choosing a, you know, nut bar. Um, And so we need to see kind of those makings. Um, as well, again, I, whether that's in a kind of product or service, uh, service fashion, I would say those are some of the the most important things. Got it. Um, I I was reading when I was doing research for this that it's you say that this is not just going to be food focused, but it's consumer focused. Do you have like certain areas that you really want to hit on, or is it just if it's a consumer facing brand that resonates with you, you're going to invest in it? So I would say we're open to um, consumer broadly. 
And I think of, you know, when asked, like, what, what does success look like in this? Um, you know, I, I talk about this idea of value creation, but value creation across multiple planes. And so value creation from the sense of we're, we're supporting products and services that, you know, better a consumer's life. And so that, you know, gets us more excited about things in the wellness space that gets us more excited about, um, you know, things that are solving a specific kind of pain point for the consumer. So like Belgian boys, for example, I would say is not, it's a clean ingredient indulgence. Um, but as a consumer, oh my God, does it make the life of a mom, a busy mom in the morning, like the, what they do for my sanity. And so kind of this idea of betterment, um, in a kind of broader understanding is one that gets us excited because it ties into that vector of value creation. The other one goes back to a little bit of what I was talking about in terms of like human values. We want to be aligned with the teams that we're working on. We want to be part of organizations that help to create better people. Uh, you know, I can say like very authentically, um, my outlook on the world and the way I show up and interact is better and different than it would have been had I not intersected with kind. We want to be partnered with organ organizations that can really say that and that have team members who leave and say that. And then the third plane of value creation is in the more traditional sense, which we think is kind of a byproduct of those two things, which is economic value creation. Well, we're just about running out of time and I want to, I have a few more things. So I'm going to put two questions together. One specifically for you and your goals um, with Camino and then one that's just more zoomed out macro. So first, like we you know for the rest of the year, do you have a target for how many investments you want to make? Or is it just, you know, what is sort of the time frame for this fund? And then also, given what we've been talking about before with uh, such a weird investing uh, environment for a lot of companies, is it going to what what's going to happen to to companies down the line, not even the ones that you're investing in, but just the ones that raised a lot of money and then aren't able to grow? Is it going to be is there going to be a contracting of brands? Is there going to be more M&A? What, what do you think is going to happen given that we're in such a weird time financially and some companies might not have the runway that they need? So sorry for throwing so much mm -hmm. at you, but mm -hmm. there you go. <laughs> um, so we have, for the first question, you know, tied to the $350 million, we, you know, have an aim or we're thinking about that over kind of a five-year uh, time frame. Um, given that we're not a traditional fund, um, you know, the, we are, we are trying to be really thoughtful about our speed and are more focused on the right opportunities than the, uh, than the rate of deployment, if you will. And, um, in terms of what's going to happen to companies, um, I think, you know, I would say both of the things that you said, I foresee, I, I do believe that, um, you know, that there will be some contraction. I think that the the next couple of years, um, you're going to see some, you know, brands that might have had early shoots of promise probably cease to exist. Um, and that goes back to this idea that they maybe weren't built for the long term out the gate. Um, 
And, you know, I say that too, as I were big proponents of consumer choice. Um, but at some point, you know, <laughs> choice uh, has diminishing returns. And I think that there are a lot of like oversaturated categories that, you know, brought themselves to that place. And so you'll naturally have some, some fallout. Um, and then in terms of like rolling different assets up, you know, it's something we've talked about in terms of like, well, we're operators, like couldn't, couldn't we do that more uniquely? Um, I think part of it is just being really clear on uh, the ingredients that those individual assets bring to the table, right? And so, you know, does does one have owned manufacturing uh, that is really reliable and can, uh, you know, can be used for another one, two, or three similar brands? Um, then sure, but I think, um, you know, being clear on what kind of is that like secret sauce of each individual company that you're then trying to put together. Um, and then how does that make like a one plus one equal three versus just a stripping the cost out model um, is, is what at least if we were looking at that, you know, we would um, need to be able to see to say there's something long term to that play. Well, Ellie, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you for joining. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.